Okay, please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 15. The prophetic overthrow, the promise of God to David comes to pass, begins to come to pass this, in this evening's passage. We find the unhappy conclusion today to a promise God made to David. Oftentimes when we speak of God's promises to man, we're speaking of good things. We think of God's promises, God's promise of provision, God's promise uh, to um, be found in us. If you seek me, ye shall find me. If you seek with all your heart, these promises, the great and precious promises that God has made. And yet, uh, as we look into David's life, uh, following his sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah the Hittite, we find that God made a different promise to David. And that promise, as we considered it, was found in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, where we read this. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he, excuse me, shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. So God makes this promise that because of David's sin, he would have one from his own house arise and oppose him and take his wives. And effectively what the promise was here would be to shame him to humble him, to lower him, and to make it clear to the nation that the king had sinned. And God made this promise. Well, here we are. We find ourselves in the time of reckoning. We won't get through the whole of the judgment today, but we will see its unfortunate beginnings, and it will not stop until all of God's promises are fulfilled. Now, we... Review where we left off last time. It has been a little while since we've uh, been in this series, just based upon the events that have taken place of late. Absalom was finally brought back from, ag- from exile. Remember, he killed his half-brother uh, because of uh, his half-brother raping his sister Tamar. And so he kills his half-brother, and then he flees to Grandad. Uh, and he stays there in exile until David finally calls him back. Absalom then comes back. He's still not allowed to see the king after he's living in Jerusalem for a couple of years. And then the king finally allows him to come into his presence. Basically, he gets a pardon for his murdering his half-brother. And now Absalom, or at least some point within the spectrum of those events, Absalom decides that he should be king. And he proceeds to present himself as a man of the people and to steal the hearts of the people away from David. And we learned about that last time we were together in 2 Samuel. Uh, we were in chapters 14 through 15, 6. And we learned about Absalom seeking to steal the hearts of Israel. And indeed, he did a good job with his beauty, his charisma, and his determination. He did indeed steal the hearts of the people of Israel. And we pick up this evening in verse 7, where we read this in verses 7 and 8. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron, for thy servant vowed a vow when I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve 
the Lord. So the text opens up here in verse 7 by saying, after 40 years. Now this is a bit of a mystery here. 40 years from what? We certainly know it was not 40 years after he was restored because David only reigns for 40 years, including his time reigning in Hebron. Seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. And so he only reigns for a full 40 years. So this certainly couldn't be 40 years since, since Absalom's restoration. It couldn't be even 40 years from Absalom's birth. He was born in Hebron. We know that. But that would have been well before 40 years ago since David is still on the throne. He only reigns for 40 years. Absalom cannot be 40 years old yet. So it's not that. So ambiguous is this statement that modern translations have decided it is an error. And instead of 40 years, if you look in uh, several of the modern translations, I didn't check them all, I don't have that kind of time. If you were to look at several of these translations, you would see not 40 years, but four years. If you read the commentators, they'll say there's no doubt a scribal error here, that it was actually four years, not 40 years. But there's uh, some real problems with this. First, as we look into the Hebrew, it says 40 years. And if we believe that God's word is not just inspired and inerrant, but perpetually preserved as he has promised, then we can trust that what God intended us to read and what God intended for us to have is 40 years. Now, it's ironic and interesting. There are various times in the scriptures where you'll find in the Hebrew something and then if you look into different trans, early translations of the Bible, the Syriac or the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, you'll find that they changed it there. But what is so fascinating to me about this is that in the Hebrew, the Syriac, and the Septuagint, all three say 40 years. And yet the modern translations, with absolutely no precedent to go on, change it to four years. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says in the Hebrew. It's not what the Bible says in the Syriac. It's not what the Bible says in the Greek Old Testament. It says 40. I think we can believe and trust that God has preserved his word and that it is 40. So the natural question is then, what is this 40 years? 40 years since what? Well, we don't fully know. We mentioned already it's unlikely that the 40 years speaks of David's reign as there are still many events in 2 Samuel following Absalom's rebellion and David only reigned for 40 years. So this can't be the final year of his reign. It can't be. There's just too much left to be done in the book for this to be the final year of David's reign. So it, it, it is very likely not that. It cannot be 40 years of Absalom's life because the text t tells us in 2 Samuel 2 that Absalom was born in Hebron. That would have been after David's ministry as king began and David only reigned for 40 years. And we're not at his 40-year mark, so we're certainly not at Absalom's 40-year mark, right? So there are a couple of possible theories as to what this 40 years could be. And the, the two best theories are, first, that it's 40 years from the anointing of David to be king in, Second Samuel, or, uh, in 1 Samuel. That would have been seven years prior to David's reign, about seven years. So David was, after he was anointed, it was about seven years before he took the throne. So it's possible that it's David's anointing that would put David at the 33rd year of his ministry with seven years let, yet to go in his reign as king 
Absalom would be probably in his uh, high, late 20s or early 30s. That would make sense. Or it could be 40 years from the people's demand for a king. Remember, that was just before Saul began to reign. Probably somewhere around 10 years prior to, um, well, um, excuse me, not 10 years prior to David's reign, uh, 40 years before uh, to the time where they demanded a king. So well before that. And that would put David's reign you know, significantly earlier still. It seems likely, as we consider these two theories, that it's most likely from when David had been anointed to be king as that 40-year mark. But it could be either of those marks. And it could very well show that as we transition to this time where David is going to be deposed from his kingdom for a brief while, and Absalom is going to take its place, show the fickleness of, uh, of the people of Israel. Showing that they demanded a king, Saul was given to them, was not the king that God had um, designed initially. He failed out. God gave them David, who was his, the anointed one, and now the people having God's anointed are going to be so easily diverted from him to the charm and the charisma of his son Absalom. So one way or another, there is a 40-year span here that the, the text is marking. And the hearts of the people are about to be turned away to another. Probably somewhere around the 30th year of David's reign, Absalom goes to the king and he asks him to be released to go pay a vow that he made to the Lord while he was in exile in Syria, in Geshur, where his grandfather was king. And by his own testimony, he said, my vow is to serve the Lord, and it would need to be done in Hebron, and I vowed the Lord, to the Lord that if you ever allowed me to come back into the land, I would go pay this vow. We don't really know why it had to be in Hebron. Uh, we don't really know much about the vow. We simply know that this was what he said. Uh, the tabernacle was in Jer Jerusalem, so it wasn't a Nazarite vow. Uh, he would have gone to the tabernacle or the temple uh, after, after it would have been built. A Nazarite would have gone there. But at this point in, in history, he would have gone to the tabernacle if that were the vow. However, it was the place of his birth. It was the place where David's reign began. And while... We don't know from the vow perspective why it was there. From the conspiracy perspective, it makes great sense. Hebron was the place where David began his ministry. Hebron was a well-fortified city in the mountains. Hebron was the place where Absalom was born. He would have had people there that knew him and loved him. It's a great place to overthrow the kingdom if you're going to start a kingdom. So verses 9 and 10. The king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. So the king gives Absalom leave to go, and the plot begins to take shape. He sends spies throughout the land, Absalom does, uh, people on his side, people whose hearts he had stolen away, who would help him initiate his plot, who would gather the people toward him. And he says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet in Hebron, when you hear that call, you should yell and shout that Absalom reigns in Hebron. 
And he believes that he had enough people on his side, enough people that, that uh, agreed that he should be king, that simply the declaration of his kingship would be sufficient for him to effectively take control of the kingdom. Verses 11 and 12. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, and he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So Absalom's spies are sent throughout the land, and they gather 200 men with him out of Jerusalem. And it says here that they were men that did not know what was going on. Uh, they, they didn't know the fullest uh, extent of, of the, the plot here. Uh, this is what uh, people call today, or what you would find in reading as useful idiots, they're called. They're people who don't really understand what's going on. They don't really understand the fullest extent of the, the, the implications of their actions, but they're going along with it because it makes most sense to them in their ignorance. The, uh, the particularly the communist and Marxist writers of the past couple centuries call them useful idiots. And that's what we would see here. Uh, ignorant to the fullest extent of their leader's rebellious ambitions, but following him nonetheless. And then he calls for a man named Ahithophel, who was a Gilonite. Gila was a city in the hill countries of Judah. This is the first time that we're introduced to him. We've talked about him a little bit before, around the time of Bathsheba, because there's a link between Ahithophel and Bathsheba, which we'll explore deeply next week. But this is the first time the text actually introduces him. And he was David's counselor. He lived in Gilo, which was probably not too far from Bethlehem, and he was David's counselor. He was a very, very wise man. This man was not a useful idiot. This man knew exactly what was going on. He knew of the conspiracy, and he was a part of it. He wanted this. He fully understood, and he wanted David overthrown. He was a man of such wisdom and understanding, this would be a huge asset to Absalom. This makes Absalom's revolt, Absalom's coup here, significantly more likely to take place, more likely to be successful because of Ahithophel's presence in it. So the text tells us the conspiracy was indeed very strong and the people were continually siding with Absalom. Absalom is gaining the hearts of the people here. Verses 13 and 14. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all of his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So David hears about the conspiracy. He understands fully what is going on, Absalom's strong position, and he decides to flee. He does this for several reasons. Uh, the first being that he recognizes Absalom will be upon them quickly. And he, that, that he's not in a great position if his back is against the wall fortified in Jerusalem, especially if there's a great number of people in Jerusalem that take Absalom's side. Second, probably out of love for Absalom. He doesn't want a battle here because he doesn't want Absalom to be hurt. Uh, he, he doesn't want Absalom to be killed. And then thirdly, he doesn't want bloodshed in the city. The last thing he wants is for this little civil war between his son and himself to cause the lives of many in Jerusalem to be killed, to be lost. So he strategically retreats out of Jerusalem so that lives can be spared. 
Verses 15 and 16. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep his house. So David's servants are still loyal to him. David still has a very loyal following, many. And we'll find that his following is actually quite robust as he uh, begins to kind of prepare his counter attack here. He leaves, but he brings his household with him with the exception of 10 of his wives. Uh, concubines here, lesser wives. Those 10 wives he leaves and they were there to keep the house, to upkeep things while they are gone. The bloodshed would be spared. The people would see David as weak. Absalom is strong. But David would... would be out of the way and there would not be nearly as much violence. So David flees. Verses 17 and 18 tell us, And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him and all the Carathites and the Pelathites and the Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. So he's leaving the city on foot. His servants follow him. And we find here specifically Carathites, Pelathites, and Gittites. A group of 600 men from Gath. Whether it was all of them from Gath or whether just the Gittites from Gath, there's a little bit of, of debate. But the Carathites and the Pelathites we've seen before. In 2 Samuel 8, 18, we find that this is a group of men led by Benaiah, who's the son of Jehoiada. And these were kind of David's secret service. They were his hired muscle. They were men of the Philistines who were hired by David to protect him. And there would be a great strategic advantage to hiring people that were not necessarily of your people to protect you because they wouldn't necessarily have um, loyalty in in situations such as this. They're loyal to the almighty dollar, right? They're getting paid. David's paying me. I'm going to protect David because he's paying me. And so there, there would be some advantage there. The, the Gittites, however, we'd not heard of before. And they, at, at the least, the Gittites probably have a little bit of a different motivation. We read of this in 19 and 20. Then said the king to Ittai, the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. Wherefore, whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us, seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. Itai was the leader of the Gittites, it would seem, and this group of Gittites were a band of warriors. David sees Itai and these Gittites following them out of the city, and he's troubled by this. He had just recently, in fact, the day before, come from Gath, which was the city in the Philistines where David had lived for, for a time, at least 18 months, uh, while he was in exile. He'd actually been there twice, and he had lived in the, uh, under the king of Gath. Perhaps Itai had known him from that time. Perhaps that's why the Carathites and the Pelathites had come with him as well, because they knew of him, they respected him. Some of these men may have roved with him a little bit when he was out uh, conquering when he was there in Gath. And so he had just arrived the day before, and he is no doubt a military leader. We'll find later on in the book that at the point of David's counterattack, Itai is going to command a full one-third 
of David's military might. So this is a trustworthy man. The King James Version calls him an exile. Others believe him to have been specifically a proselyte. So one who had recognized that the God of the Jews is the God of gods, who had forsaken his land in the Philistines and come to be a part of what God was doing in Jerusalem. He was a man who had left Philistine culture and had at least recently assimilated himself into the nation of Israel, quite possibly a proselyte into the nation. And David is distressed that a man who had just arrived should be thrown into this civil war. He says, no, go back with the king. He's calling his son the king. Go back with the king. Stay with the king. Stay there in Jerusalem. Don't follow me into this this exile of my own. But he refuses. David blesses him to return. Verse 23 says, All the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. They, br- they pass over the brook Kidron in the Kidron Valley, which is just east of Jerusalem, toward the way of the wilderness. You go out of Jerusalem, you pass over the brook Kidron, and then you go up the Mount of Olives. And this is what we come to next. The man Zadok. So they're not quite to the Mount of Olives yet, and Zadok comes, verses 24 and 25. And lo, Zadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor again in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. So, so uh, Itai the Gittite comes and offers to follow him. And then Zadok and Abiathar come with the ark of the covenant. Zadok and Abiathar were the high priests at this time. So they come with the ark. The ark which uh, they believe should follow the true anointed king of Israel, David. And David says, no, carry the ark back to Jerusalem. Stay there. That's, the ark belongs in the house of God. Stay with the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And if the Lord should so bless me to return to, to Israel, to return to Jerusalem, then I will see both it, the ark, and his habitation, the tabernacle. Verses 26 and 27. But if he thus say... I have no delight in thee. This is David continuing. Behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art thou, art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaz thy son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. On the other hand, David says, You return to the city, and, and, and if God would so see fit not to restore me, not to let me see it again, then God will do what is best. And as for Zadok, he wasn't just a priest of God. David says he was a seer. He functioned likely through the Urim and the Thummim as the prophetic voice for God. And as with the ark, that means his place was with God and in his, his tabernacle. You're the seer. You're the one who communicates with God through the Urim and the Thummim. You are the high priest of God. You need to stay with the tabernacle of God. 
And so he says, return to the city in peace and take your two sons with you, uh, Ahimaaz being his son and Jonathan being Abiathar's son. Now, Abiathar is not mentioned here specifically, but we know he was present from verse 29, which we'll read in a few moments. The conversation, however, is between David and Zadok. So he calls for his return. And then he says in verses 28 and 29, See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried back the ark of God again, and they tarried there. So David says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to run too far. I'm going to just stay in the wilderness, just just, uh, presumably on the other side of Mount Olivet, and I'm going to stay there until such time as you tell me what I need to do. Do I need to flee farther? Over, over the Jordan River, continue going east, or can I just hang out here? What is my son going to do? You can tell me that. And until then, I'm just going to stay, and we'll see next week how that plays out. So they carry the ark back to Jerusalem, and they stay there. Verse 30, And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olive, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. So David ascends Mount Olivet, and as he's doing so, he's weeping over the situation, over his son's rebellion, over the, the situation as it stands, perhaps even thinking about Bathsheba and Uriah and weeping that he put God in a situation where this had to happen. And the people that were with him indeed did the same. Excuse me. Okay. Things, however, get worse for David before they get better. Verses 31 and 32. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with with his coat rent and earth upon his head. So David learns that Ahithophel is conspiring with Absalom, and this is very concerning to David, because David understands just how wise Ahithophel is and how easy it would be if Ahithophel is is heeded by Absalom for Absalom to, to, to defeat him. And so he asks God that he would take the counsel of Ahithophel and make it foolishness in his divine mercy. All of this is happening as they're heading up Mount Olivet. And by the time they get to the top, David's still weeping. David has released the situation to God's mercy. And the scriptures tell us that when he got to the top, he worshipped God. Then comes his friend, Hushai the archite, comes to meet him. His clothes are rent. He's showing a great grief here. Uh, He's one of David's oldest counselors and his friend. And we read in verses 33 and 34, Unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return into the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so now will I also be thy servant, then mayest thou for me Defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. So David sees an opportunity here. Hushai was probably quite old. So David says, look, you're, you're, you're too old to come with us. 
you will slow us down. You'll be a, more of a burden than anything if you come with us. But here's what you can do. You can go back to the city. You can offer your services to, to Absalom. You can say, hey, I served your father. Now I'd be happy to serve you. And then you can try to get yourself in a position where when Ahithophel gives his advice, you can, give, you can counter his advice. You can be the counter-espionage guy. You can be the guy that seeks to undo Ahithophel's counsel. And so David sends him back, and the chapter finishes in verses 35 to 37. He says, And hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abiathar the priest? Therefore it shall be that, when, that what things soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Amaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them ye shall send unto me, excuse me, um, unto me everything that ye can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So David has this whole network set up now, right? Hushai is there with the king. He'll report to Zadok and Abiathar. Abiathar will give that message to their sons, and the sons will take it to David. So he's got a messenger spy network now, and there is at least that set in place. We hasten now to chapter 16, where we read this in verses 1 through 4. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord. O king, this is a very strange incident. Ziba was the servant of Saul that David had assigned with his many sons to care for Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth was the son of, of Saul who, when there was the overthrow and Saul and his sons were killed, the nurse picked him up to try to run with him, dropped him, and he was paralyzed, at least from the waist down, lame in his feet. And so Mephibosheth, being the lineage of um, Saul, and uh, wa David wanting to bless Saul in the house of Jonathan. Excuse me, it wasn't Saul's son. It was Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. Uh, wanting to bless Jonathan, wanting to bless the house of, uh, of Saul in that way, particularly the promise he made to Jonathan, makes Mephibosheth an honored man, basically treats him as a son himself. Gives him a parcel of land and tells Ziba and his sons, your job from now on is to tend this inheritance for Mephibosheth. This is your job. And so Ziba comes and he has all of these great provisions. And he says, this is all for you. And I brought you a couple of asses to, to, to ride as well. So that he wouldn't have to walk the whole way. But David is a little confused. He sees all of this great stuff. The donkeys, uh, 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a bottle of wine. Very nice. Um, but then he says, well, where's Mephibosheth? See, because if you were a friend of the king, you'd, you'd go out with the king. 
you'd pursue the king. You would stay with the king. David appreciates the food, but he wants to see Mephibosheth there. I mean, he's treated Mephibosheth with tremendous kindness. Why isn't he joining David in the flight? Ziba's response is that Mephibosheth decided to stay in Jerusalem with the prospect that in the uproar, he might be able to take the kingdom again for himself and for the lineage of Saul. Now, we'll find later that Mephibosheth repudiates ever having said this. He says, I told Ziba to go saddle and ask for me, and next thing I know, he is gone. I tried to come with you, but of course, he couldn't do it himself, right? Because he's lame. So he says, I tried to come and Ziba betrayed me, in which case Ziba would be outright lying here. The text doesn't ever, ever confer one way or another, confirm, excuse me, one way or another, who was telling the truth. But it seems likely to me that Ziba was, was either quite mistaken about Mephibosheth's intentions or that he was actually deceiving him. Why? Because Mephibosheth must have been crazy to think that he could have the kingdom back. A lame, would Israel really, in, in, in the midst of a coup by David's son Absalom, a man of great beauty and strength, would, would Mephibosheth really think that Israel was going to exalt a lame man, a, a, a dead king's grandson, to the throne? No. no. He couldn't have thought that. There's no way he could have thought that. David had already treated him like a son. He couldn't have expected Absalom to treat him better. So it seems likely that Mephibosheth was telling the truth and Ziba was not here. But eventually what David will say is, you two figure it out. Ziba, you take half. Mephibosheth, you take half. You two figure it out on your own. I'm done with you. So Ziba, however, humbly thanks him for... And, and, and what, see what David does here? David, in, in an impulse, says, Ziba, everything that was Mephibosheth, all of his inheritance is now yours. You've been working it, now it's yours. Take it. Ziba says, hey, thanks, and he leaves. He got a lot out of that deal. One more account for consideration and then we're, we're going to apply. I'm trying to get through a, a, a broader portion here. One more account. Verses 5 through 8. When David came to Bahurim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. Gia, Gera. Uh, he came forth and cursed still as he came, and he cast stones at David and at all the servants of the king, and all the people and all the mighty men were on, were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. So David comes to Bahurim, and a man comes out from Saul's lineage named Shimei. And he was just delighting in David's misfortune. He was casting rocks at them. He was cursing them. And he was saying, yes, God is now punishing you for stealing the kingdom from Saul. Is that the way it happened? Not even close. Saul died and Ishbosheth took over. David wouldn't even allow Ishbosheth to be killed. He was waiting for God to give him the kingdom. God gave him the kingdom. This had nothing to do with Saul and everything to do with David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So that's not even the issue here. But he says David is a usurper of Saul's throne. He says that the blood of Saul's house is on David's head. And Shimei says Absalom is the just reward of David's evil upon Saul's house. And this angers one of David's followers greatly. 
a man named Abishai. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 16. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall say then, Wherefore hast thou done so? Abishai is Joab's brother. They're both David's nephew. Joab is the captain of David's host. He's the general of David's armies. We've seen Abishai before. Remember when David was still in exile. And Saul and his men and Abner and his men, they were all encamped. And David and two men went to steal the cruise of water and, and the spear from, from Saul. And David was, was, was looking at this camp with these two men. And one of those men spoke up and said, now's your chance to kill him. And David said, no, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. And he said, okay, then I'll do it. And David said, no, 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 you don't want to bear that guilt any more than I want to bear that guilt. The man offering to kill Saul that night was Abishai, Joab's brother. This man just wants to, wants to chop people's heads off. We can see it here. He says, let me just take the guy's head off and we'll be done with this, right? David says, no. And notice what he says. Remember how we talked about it this morning with the, with, when the demon spoke to Jesus and said, what have, I, what have we to do with thee? David says it here. What have I to do with you? But notice the pronoun. It's not thee. It's you. Second person plural in our King James Bible, right? What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? All you sons of Zeruiah are the same. You just want to kill people. What is going on with my nephews here? They all just want people dead. And so they're a violent crew. Uh, the, uh, um, Abishai is and... Uh, of course, Azahel is dead now. Joab, they're just a violent bunch of guys. David says, what do I have to do with you? Just let him curse. Let him do his thing. God has given him leave to do so, so let him do it. This is his time. I am leaving the city in shame. I am a, I am a shamed king. God is, call, is leading him to curse, so let him curse. And then David turns to all his servants and he says, and David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, verses 11 and 12, Behold my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look, upon, look on my affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. David knows he's innocent of the, of the curse that is being put against him. But he says, look, my son is seeking my life. And if my son hates me enough to seek my life, how much more does this man have a right to do so considering his entire family was deposed by me? So let him curse. And, and he says, it may be that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing. We studied that a, a little while ago from Proverbs twenty four seventeen. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. A final two verses and then we'll apply. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. So Shimei follows him along the route, cursing him and throwing stones at him along the way. And they finally get to the place on the hillside over against them from Bahurim, where they are able to rest and refresh themselves. 
A long uh, exposition today brings us to our application. And I'd like us, as we do so, to consider our standing before God and what that should mean in regard to our response to the actions of others toward us. We are in these United States, and as such, we are a people that are deeply concerned with personal rights. Our right to speak, our right to actions and thoughts that are our own. We carry this over into relationships too, don't we? That as a person in a certain position, we have rights that dare not be infringed as a parent, perhaps as an older sibling, as a boss, as a pastor, that we have the right to be treated a certain way or to not be treated a certain way. We have rights. And when we're withheld these rights, we have a tendency to get upset, sometimes to demand that those rights be ours, sometimes to take those rights by force, almost always to brood or bemoan or resent those who would seek to withhold from us the rights that are due to us. And as we think of David's response to Absalom in this passage, fleeing the city rather than fighting, turning his, his eye away from Shimei instead of letting Ab- Abishai chop his head off, we see a man who deferred his right. He was the Lord's anointed. But he backed off. And he said, look, if God is in control and God is allowing this to happen, then even though it's my right, if I simply humble myself before the Lord, maybe, just maybe, I can trust the Lord to give me what is due to me if the Lord would be so pleased. Do you see that? Do you see that attitude in David where the ark comes to him and he says, no, send the ark back to Jerusalem. If God would be so pleased to give me back that privilege, I'll see it again. Yes, he has that right, by right, to be king. Absalom is usurping the throne of the Lord's anointed. But David's not fighting it. And I believe in in this he reflects a biblical principle which we ought to think on. And so our first application point this evening that I'd like us to consider is just a reminder of this, that the essence of the Christian life is the denial of our rights for the sake of Christ and others. The essence of this Christian life is the denial of our rights for the sake of Christ and others. All throughout the epistles, we find the denial of self and of our personal rights to be a theme. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul recounts a time where he despaired of his own life for the sake of reaching others with the gospel. But, when compel- but, but what compelled him to continue was that he was not his own. He said in 2 Corinthians 1.9, But we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Paul said, I was going into a situation where I might physically die, where there was great danger, but do you know what? I did it anyway because I had already had the death. The death sentence was perhaps out there. They were going to sentence me to death, but that was okay because I'd already had the death sentence in here. I had already died to self. I had already borne a personal death sentence that says, God, let your will be done. My rights are not the issue here. Your word is the issue. My rights are not the issue. Your pleasure is the issue. And that's what Paul said. 
He said, though they want to kill me, I am not, and, and of course it would be wrong for them to do so, to take away his right to live. He says, but I've already died to self. God can protect me, or God can let me die, but either way, I'm going to do his will. You're likely familiar with Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are alive in body, but our will should be dead. We should have died to self that we might live unto God. Now we could go on. We could talk about all of the verses that talk about us yielding our rights. You know, as Americans, we have the right to free speech. As Americans, we have the right to bear arms. But where does the Bible talk about our government giving us, uh, uh, about us, God expecting our government to give us those rights? You won't find it. As a matter of fact, the majority of Christians throughout the centuries have not had the right to free speech. And when they get up and when they proclaim the word of God, they're killed for it. They're imprisoned for it. They had yielded that right that they thought they had to the gospel. That right that they should have had to the gospel. But it's not just the denial of our rights for God's sake. We're also called throughout the scripture to deny our rights for the sake of others. And especially for believers. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. You, you have a liberty in Christ. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh but by love serve one another. You've been given great liberty in Christ, but the design of that liberty is not to give you the freedom to do what you want, it's to give you the freedom to do what is best for others. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul rebukes the church for going to law against other believers, and he says this in verses 7 and 8. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take the wrong. Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. You have every right to argue with them. They're in the wrong, you're in the right, but you're at fault. Be far better for you, instead of fighting with your brother or sister in Christ, to simply take the wrong and suffer yourself to be defrauded than to mar the testimony of Christ by going to law against them. So Paul says in Romans 13.9, For this, thou shalt, commit adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Where am I going with this? That the essence of the Christian life is the denial of our rights for the sake of Christ and others. David was the king. And as king, he was entitled to certain things. And yet throughout his life, he had shown a humility that deferred his right to the will of God and the expectations of God to give him the opportunity to live within his rights. So David spent years having been anointed king fleeing from Saul 
It was his right. That throne was his right. But he said, I'm going to take my right and I'm going to submit it to God so that it can be done God's way. David had the right as king to stand in Jerusalem and to fight Absalom for his throne. But he says, no, God has chosen to take this throne from me as he promised he would do in 2 Samuel 12. And though it is my right, I am going to defer that right for the sake of God and for the sake of his will. Now, in this case, we do see that David is suffering the consequences of his sin. And yet, his response still echoes of humility. Leaving rather than fighting, allowing Shimei to curse him. But my question to you is, what are those rights that God may have called you to yield? What are those rights that you're perhaps trying to hang on to? That are, are, are yours, perhaps. You have the right... But in hanging on to it, you're yielding God's will. Perhaps the right to your time. It is your time. But then as Paul taught, redeeming the time for the days are evil, it's God's time. Your money, God's money. Your possessions, God's possessions. Your energy, God's energy. Your patience, your pride, your position, your honor. If serving God meant yielding any of those, if doing what God wants you to do means yielding any of those rights, any of those things that are yours to do with, would you be willing? See, the essence of the Christian life is denying your rights for the sake of others. Using your liberty as an occasion, not to the flesh, but by love to serve one another. Using the liberty that you have to serve Christ with all your heart. Is that where you find your rights today? Are your, your rights yielded to God's will? Second, the confidence of the Christian life is the praise of God, not of men. This is a point primarily drawn as an extension of the previous one. We'll come back to a more direct application in just a moment. One of the side effects of yielding your rights is that you can fall into a state of frustration or discouragement. If you yield your right to be recognized, you yield your right to your possessions, you yield your right to your time, you're going to find that people are going to take advantage of you, aren't they? When you yield your right to your money, you're going to feel like perhaps sometimes you're getting the short end of the stick. People are taking advantage of you. People are taking advantage of your time, of your kindness, of your willingness to serve. Yeah, all I ever do is serve. They, they haven't even thanked me this week. You yield your rights and you might come across discouragement. So if you've yielded your right to be recognized, then you're receiving no affirmation. You're receiving no one patting you on the back for what you're doing. You've yielded your right to be praised. You've yielded your right to be compensated for your efforts. And it may just happen that you will get discouraged because you're doing so much and nobody sees it or nobody cares or it seems nobody cares. And how can one live that way? I mean, the greatest motivation to to effort is recognition. So how can one live that way if you've yielded all these rights? 
Well, that's where we as believers have, have a special privilege. And that's the privilege of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. When no one sees the good that I do, rather than going about looking for someone to praise me, I can find that my confidence in the reality that God has seen it. When others tease me for my unchangeables, I can have confidence of knowing that God made me just the way I am. When I wonder if my best is good enough, I remember that God has called me to faithfulness and I seek affirmation in His righteousness, not man's rewards. When God asks me to yield more money than I'm comfortable yielding, yield more time than I would like to yield, when I take my rights and take my my privileges and I yield them to God and I place them under Him and I place them under others, and then I start to get frustrated because it seems as though the others that I'm serving don't care or are taking advantage of me, and it's frustrating me, I remind myself that it's not them for whom I'm doing it, it's God for whom I'm doing it. I'm doing it for God, and I will have praise of the same. So Paul wrote to the servants about serving their masters in Colossians chapter 3. And whether your master, your boss, ever recognizes you or not, he says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. See, because if you're only doing it as unto men, then the degree of your effort or the degree of the quality of your work is going to be directly related to how good or bad your boss is. So if I have a junkie boss, or he's not paying me enough, or he doesn't appreciate my efforts, or he's taking advantage of me, then my effort and my my, my quality is going to reflect the poor position that I think I'm in. But if I'm doing it as unto the Lord, well, the Lord has never made a mistake. So even if my boss doesn't appreciate me, and even if I'm not, uh, not the happiest in my position, yet I can rest in the fact that God is pleased. And that can get me through. We don't do right only when others are watching, or certainly because others are watching. We don't just do right when we assume there are positive results involved. We do things well with all of our might because God is watching and I will have reward of the same. And when I see myself the way God sees me, then I find that the only worth I truly have is my worth in Him. I find my worth in God's pleasure, not in man's pleasure. I find my worth in God's praise, not in man's praise. And I find my worth in God's purposes, not in man's purposes. And that can help me in the times where I feel like by yielding my rights as God has asked me to do, I'm suffering for it. Well, I might be suffering in the temporal, but I'm gaining in the eternal. So regardless of how men treat me, I know what God thinks of me. And he's the only one that matters. Regardless of whether or not men see or appreciate my actions, I know that God sees my actions and he's the only one who matters. So the essence of the Christian life is denial of our rights for the sake of Christ and others. The confidence of the Christian life is the praise of God, not of men. Finally, by resisting others for the sake of your rights, you might just be resisting God. We come back to the concept of rights and we consider the interaction between David, Abishai, and Shimei. David is being cursed by this profane man who is of the lineage of Saul. 
David is not, has not done what this man has charged. He has every right as the king to kill this man for blasphemy against the Lord's anointed. And this is what Abishai offers to do. But David refuses him. Because David also understands that the circumstances that he's in are the judgment of God. That his sin have brought these circumstances and that Shimei is part of the natural consequences that he brought upon himself by his sin. And as he yields himself to the will of God, and as he is yielding his rights to God, one of those rights that he is yielding is the right to be avenged. He says, I will not take vengeance. In the same way he would not be avenged of Nabal, Abigail's husband, though he almost did. In the same way he would not be avenged of Saul or of Ishbosheth, he says, Vengeance is the Lord's, and I will not avenge myself for this man's cursing. I'll let God do that. He's yielding his right, and sometimes yielding your right means suffering. But when we choose to assert our rights instead, it might just be that by asserting your rights, by claiming them, by grabbing a hold of them, you're also resisting God. And I warn you of that. Because sometimes we just, we want what we want and we want what's due to us. It's my right and I want it. Well, if it were yours, then God has every power to give it to you, right? So why should you have to go out of your way to take it? Why not just ask God for it? David says, if this man's cursing me, it's because God has allowed it which means I'm going to allow it and leave that man's sin to God. And by the way, it's going to come back on Shimei, something fierce in the chapters to come. Shimei is a part of God's consequences. And to kill him would be to resist God's judgment simply for the sake of him defending his rights. So David says in verse, chapter 16, verse 11, Behold my son, which came forth from my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more... Now may this Benjamite do it. Let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. And then he says something even more insightful in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will requite me good. I mentioned already Proverbs twenty-four seventeen. Look at verses 17 and 18. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And he turned away his wrath from him. David says, perhaps because this man is rejoicing over his enemy's stumble, God will see it and will turn away his wrath from me. Solomon would write those words in Proverbs 24, but David understood them full well also. He understood full well that God has compassion upon those who are afflicted, even if they're wicked men. So David supposes that just perhaps the unjust cursing of Shimei upon him might give uh, God the, the, the desire to show mercy. I would encourage you, particularly in these days of political partisanship, to remember those verses as well. So the question is this as we close. Where do these concepts touch you? In what areas of your life have you feverishly guarded your rights 
from God or from others. Maybe you have gone even so far as to demand your rights at the expense of service to God. The right to your time. God, you can't have my time. That's my time. And I want it. And I'm not going to give it to you. The right to your energy, money, children, possessions. God, these are my things. These are my children. These are my energies. This is my money. I'm going to do with it what I want to do. And when God asks you to yield them for Him, or perhaps even for others, do you find yourself resisting Him? When others challenge you, challenge your authority, challenge your position, challenge you in a place, uh, in, in a place of, or a position, do you seek in your pride to assert your right to resist them, or do you humble yourself? Is your confidence in the midst of trial, trouble, or scorn rooted in the circumstances around you or in the God who gave them to you? When you get discouraged, if you, if you have yielded your rights and you've been yielding your rights and you get discouraged, do you remember that the praise is of God, not of man? That when you do a good job or when you've given that money and it's been wasted or when you've poured yourself into somebody and then they make the wrong choice, can you at that time remember that God's call upon you was to do right? And that God is, if God is pleased, then, then, it's, then, then it's right. It's, it's, it's everything that it needs to be. Because your praise need not be of men, but of God. You know, there are, are questions which confront us all this evening about our rights our rights as it pertains to serving God and our rights as it pertains to serving others. I don't know what it is in your life. I've given a few scenarios. I've given a few examples. I don't know what it is for you. Where the Holy Spirit's placing his thumb saying, you're holding that back. That's a right that you're keeping to yourself. Maybe it's the right to be used by God. Talked to a man a while back and that's what he said. He said, I was willing to do anything for God but what I hadn't yielded was my right to be used, my right to be put on the shelf. I, I had to be used by him somehow. He says, when I finally yielded that right to be used, the Lord opened doors. Maybe the reason why you're hitting a wall in your spiritual life and it seems like you're bouncing and you can't get anywhere is because you're holding on to something, a right that is yours. That you say, no, I'm entitled to this. This is mine. Like David could have done, I'm the king. I'm entitled to this kingdom. I'm entitled to respect but he didn't. He didn't yield them. He submitted himself and he let God work, out, work it all out. Are you feverishly hanging on to something that's yours, that you won't give up? You might just find that if you are, that could be what is spiritually frustrating you. Let's seek the Holy Spirit and his wisdom as we seek to understand if we're right with God in this area of our rights, or if we have some yielding that's yet to be done. Let's pray together.